welcome to the Fit for the Future podcast, which helps you navigate this fast-changing world by bringing you ideas, information, interviews, and insights for being fit for the future. Here's your host, Gihan Pereira. Hello, everybody. I'm recording this at the end of the Easter weekend, and it's, uh, wow, it's probably the strangest Easter that many of us will have ever experienced, and maybe the strangest uh, Easter that we will ever experience, uh, whether you've got a religious background or you just enjoy having time with family and friends and have a bit of a holiday. This particular Easter is like no other with the continuing spread of the new coronavirus and the threat of our healthcare system being overwhelmed by cases of COVID-19. Our whole society is in this partial or complete lockdown to try and get some sort of control over what's happening with this global pandemic. But I don't want to talk about the pandemic today. I want to talk about one of the biggest effects that it's had, and that is the concept that more and more people are working from home now. In fact, just a couple of months ago, at the start of February, I published a blog post uh, on my website and on LinkedIn, and I asked the question, are you ready for the flexible work revolution? And it was making the point that for most of the last 200 years, most knowledge workers worked in an office, and that was just the way that things were done. But there was a greater demand, and there is a greater demand for people having flexible work, whether that means flexible working hours or where they work or when they work and teams that are distributed around the world. And I asked the question, what if offices didn't exist or or what if offices were illegal? And at the time, it was a hypothetical question, but as a result of this pandemic, many organizations have been forced to send their people home so that you now have this idea of a distributed team where Some people are in the office, some people at home, maybe everybody's working from home, including leaders and managers, and many businesses and organizations are doing this for the first time. And in the last few weeks, a lot of experts have shared a lot of really good ideas about how to make that work effectively, especially if you've had to do it in a rush and you're doing it for the first time. So how do people work from home effectively? Uh, How do you maintain productivity? What sort of online collaboration tools do you use? How do you make video conferencing work well? We've seen stories about how great Zoom is. We've seen problems about Zoom security and then stories about how Zoom's fixing their security. Uh, We've talked about virtual collaboration and there are a whole bunch of resources out there, which is fantastic. It's, It's great to see so many people pitching in and offering advice about how to make this sort of work work effectively. It's something I've been pushing for a long time, about almost 10 years ago. My friend Chris Pudney and I co-authored a book called Out of Office, which is about how to use the internet to give you more freedom and flexibility, but still be effective at work. So it's a trend that I've been passionate about. And most of us didn't expect that we'd be forced to work from home because of this tiny little virus and this global pandemic, but that's what we have now. So don't want to add to all the really good advice about how to work from home effectively and how to be productive and collaborate well. But today I want to touch on one area which I don't think has been covered really well before. And it's what happens when things go wrong. It's about managing conflict when you've got people working from home because conflict is inevitable. It's going to happen anyway. And it happens in the office and it happens when you're working from home. And there are some really interesting things to be aware of if you're a leader or a manager leading a team where some of the people are working from home. 
let's talk about that today. And just a word about terminology. So some people use the term remote team, virtual team. Um, I don't like those terms. Remote team sounds like people are distant and especially if you've got some people working in the office and some people remote, the remote people seem like they're second class citizens. I also don't like the idea of virtual team. It sounds like they're ghosts or again, second class citizens. The term that I really like is distributed team. So that I like the term distributed team because it means that your team isn't all in the office. Some of them may be working from home, some of them from co-working spaces, some of them from other towns and cities around the world. You may be part of a global team. So your team's distributed. At the moment, it may be that they're all working from home, but that's not always the way it's going to be. And at the end of this enforced working from home experiment, the idea of a distributed team is going to be much more normal. So let's look at how you manage conflict in that kind of team. And I'm going to talk about this for distributed teams in general, not just for when you've got everybody working from home as we're trying to get through this really challenging time. Let's think about the future when distributed teams are the norm. So conflict is inevitable. Sometimes it's even healthy, but you don't want a situation where there's excess conflict because that creates unhappy team members, you lose productivity, and if you let it go on for long enough, it'll end up with a toxic culture in your team. So conflict is going to happen in all teams, but in distributed teams, sometimes there's more conflict than in traditional, let's call them in-office or co-located teams, and sometimes those conflicts are more difficult to resolve. So in a distributed team, you might have team members who are working in different locations, in different time zones, they might be speaking different languages, they come from different cultures, and because they aren't in the same office, they don't have the same opportunities for personal rapport with each other. They have to collaborate using digital tools, they might feel isolated and alone. And all of this means that you must take even more care to manage conflict in your team. Now, there are two types of conflict, personal and professional, and personal conflicts occur when personalities clash, and they're usually based on things like interpersonal differences, cultural differences, or personal history between the two parties. And in distributed teams, one of the positives is that you're, you're less likely to experience such clashes because people tend to focus on the work first. It doesn't mean that those personal conflicts don't occur, but they're less likely. But you do get more misunderstandings in distributed teams because the wording of emails and the lack of tone of voice in any sort of text communication often leads to misunderstandings and confusion. And that can then lead to bigger conflicts between your team members and they may take it personally. Now, professional conflicts, on the other hand, involve the work itself. They usually don't have the emotional heat and the emotional baggage that goes along with personal conflict, but they're much more common in distributed teams. So you do need to manage them effectively. And if you don't resolve them quickly and fairly, professional conflicts can easily become personal conflicts as well. So let's look at a four-step conflict management process. First of all, you assess the conflict to identify the cause. Second, Based on the cause, choose your role in the process of resolving the conflict. Third, bring the parties together and take action to address the conflict. And fourth, learn from the conflict to prevent it in the future. So those are four steps. Identify the cause, choose your role, take action, and learn from the conflict. In fact, there's one other step you can take, which is the best option if it's available to you, and that is to prevent the conflict before it even occurs. So we're going to work through each of these steps in turn. And we're going to start with preventing the conflict, because if you do that, then the conflict doesn't arise in the first place. And then we'll work through the other four stages. Now, throughout, I'm going to assume that the conflict is between two of your team members. But 
Sometimes the conflicts between you and a team member, and you can use exactly the same process in this situation, but you have to be more sensitive and more open. See, even if you want to treat yourself and your team member as equals, if you're their boss, their manager, their leader, your positional authority influences the situation. So, so just understand that they have a different perspective of the situation simply because you're their manager. But broadly, the same principles apply. So let's first look at preventing the conflict. So some conflict is healthy, so you don't want to avoid it at all costs, but it also creates problems. So if you can prevent the conflict in the first place, that's usually the better option. So I'm gonna share with you six ways to create a culture that minimizes conflict in distributed teams. So here's a quick summary, and then we'll look at each of them in turn. Number one, avoid rivalry. So see team members build and maintain trust and rapport, so they work together rather than against each other. Two, create identity so team members know they're part of a team that's working towards a common goal. Three, share context so everybody knows their own role and how that contributes to the team's goals. Four, communicate informally so team members can build personal relationships alongside their professional interactions. Five, support communication with the right infrastructure so it's easier for open and honest communication. And six, lead by example, so team members can follow your lead in managing the conflict in a healthy way. So I went through this pretty quickly. Let's briefly examine each of these in turn. So first, avoid rivalry. Some friendly competition is healthy, but avoid creating an us versus them mentality because that can erode trust and rapport. And be especially mindful if your team structure is somewhat imbalanced. For example, if part of your team is based in your head office and the rest are in smaller regional offices or they're working from home, just be careful because there's this feeling of imbalance. And so to overcome that perceived disparity, look for opportunities for the smaller teams, the remote team members to exercise greater control. For example, you might invite them to chair meetings or lead presentations rather than always leaving it to you or the people who've got that positional responsibility. The next one is to create identity. So this is about creating a common sense of cohesion and identity in the team. So make sure that every team member understands how their work contributes to the common goals of the team and, and how those team goals fit into the bigger picture of the organization's mission. So that gives your work meaning and creating a sense of purpose and identity helps everybody. So look for ways to regularly bring your whole team together. Now, this will typically happen in virtual spaces, especially if your team physically can't travel, but it might occasionally be possible to bring your team together in person. The next idea is to share context. And this means creating a shared context for your team members so that they understand each other's tools, processes, and priorities. In a distributed team where you've got people working in different time zones and perhaps even speaking different languages, help everybody understand everybody else's circumstances because they can't always physically see them. If possible, organize site visits across your team so your people can see in person how other team members operate, but this isn't always possible, especially when you've got a dispersed team. But if you can, this exercise helps your team members appreciate each, each other's work. If you can't do that by bringing them together physically, give them the chance to share their workspace and explain how they each work. The next thing is to communicate informally. So in addition to your formal communication channels for doing work, encourage your team members to communicate informally as well. So in an office, you bump into each other in the corridor and you can pop into somebody's office or their cubicle for a quick chat. 
in a distributed team, you need to proactively engineer these opportunities. For example, you might allow five minutes at the start of meetings for everyone to talk about what happened on the weekend or what happened the previous day. You might allocate space in your shared virtual workspace for people to talk socially. And you might encourage people to use text and instant message informally, in addition to those channels being used for formal communication. And then, of course, you have to support your communication with infrastructure. So make sure you've got the right infrastructure to support open communication so that team members can share their concerns, be heard and build trust. In an office, people get together and talk anytime. And, and sometimes this creates conflicts, but it also allows you to address conflict immediately. In a distributed team, create similar opportunities deliberately rather than assuming they'll happen automatically. So don't rely on email, instant messages and texts in your virtual workspace. There are tools that provide a shared workspace such as Slack, Yammer, Facebook Workplace, many others. And this improves your general productivity, but also makes it easier for you to become aware of and deal with any potential conflicts. Address issues online as they arise, sharing transparently and objectively. And if the issue warrants input from others, share it publicly, set a deadline and invite people to comment. Team members can also share their own issues in the same way. It doesn't only have to be left to you. Now, team members also benefit from receiving feedback along the way. And by sharing regularly, everybody gets honest and candid feedback on their progress. This helps with the individual tasks and helps with the overall project flow as well. And this feedback, of course, also helps to build trust. People in distributed teams build their trust based on professional interactions, where they see their colleagues showing consistency, integrity, and responsiveness. In other words, things that help work get done help build trust and so give them those opportunities. Also set clear guidelines for what's appropriate in public space, shared spaces and ensure that everybody follows the rules. Allow people to disagree especially on professional issues, but insist that they act politely and respectfully. And also put private communication channels in place for personal grievances and ensure that everybody, including you, knows what channels to use to deal with their issues privately. For example, a good leader takes the approach that their doors always open for people to come along and have a chat. So make sure you provide a virtual door that people can use to communicate with you. For instance, they could pick up the phone and call you, they could set up a conference call with you, or they could start an online meeting to discuss issues before they get out of hand. Now, of course, you have to maintain confidentiality when working through issues with your people. You obviously need to protect their privacy, and people often feel more confident discussing sensitive issues in private. If you don't provide the infrastructure for people to deal with issues as they arise, then conflicts become more likely. So make it easy for anybody to step out of the public workspace and resolve problems privately. And finally, in this area of preventing conflict, lead by example. So model the behaviors that you expect of others in your team, especially important in a distributed team where everybody can scrutinize and interpret or misinterpret every word that you type, every facial expression, every vocal tone. So look for people doing things well and praise them sincerely and in public. And to make the praise sincere, identify the specific thing they did and explain why you're praising them for it. And if you need to criticize, of course, make it constructive criticism, but do it in private. In other words, follow the principle that you praise in public, criticize in private. And again, to make the criticism effective, you're not attacking the person, you identify the specific behavior, explain why there's a problem with it, and then show them a better alternative. Um, encourage people to be open, even in criticizing you. 
being private, of course, and don't punish people for raising sensitive issues, thank them instead. And if you do find that you make a mistake, apologize privately or in public, whichever is appropriate. And if you acknowledge your mistakes and apologize sincerely, other people will feel comfortable doing the same thing. Now, of course, there's a right and a wrong way to apologize. So apologize directly and clearly using really plain language like, I'm sorry, I've made a mistake, and then explain what it is. So just avoid words that water down the impact, such as, I'm sorry you feel that way, or I'm sorry, but. And now this is especially important in writing so people can interpret the words as you intended. So those are some ways to prevent conflict before they occur, but you can't prevent all conflict. So let's now look at what happens when conflicts do arise. First thing you should do is identify the cause, because conflicts arise for many reasons, and your first step in managing the conflict is to identify the root cause. At this stage, you're not trying to dig deep to find the specific cause in all its gory detail, but you're trying to put it in a broad category. So these are the five broad causes of conflict from least complex to most complex. Information, environment, skills, values, and identity. So information is when something was missing, incomplete or ambiguous. Environment is where something in the environment leads to the conflict. Skills is where people lack the appropriate skills, which leads to conflict. Values is even with the right information, environment and skills, a clash of values causes a conflict. And finally, the deepest is identity. So even when values align, the participant's sense of identity puts them at odds with each other. So information and environment are generally external and you can fix them externally. Skills, values, identity are internal and they're a little bit harder to address, but you can still address them. So let's look at each of them in turn and remember that your first step is to try to identify the cause. It's usually obvious from the situation, but even if you're not sure, at least make an initial guess and be willing to change that later. So let's look at the first one, which is the simplest one, which is information. Some conflicts arise simply because two parties just don't have the right information or their information is misunderstood. And this is more common than you might think. So for, for example, suppose Janine writes an email message, Chris, I need this document by 2 p.m. Friday. Now she might understand exactly what she wants, but there's some potential information gaps in her message. So if they work in different time zones, whose 2 p.m. is she referring to? Even which Friday does she mean? She might mean, say, tomorrow, but she can't assume that Chris will read the email in time. And even if Chris does understand the timing, what format is this document that she's asking for? It could be an editable Word document, a finalized PDF document, or something else. Now, some of these might not be major issues because Chris and Janine understand each other well, but it's surprising how often misunderstandings occur simply because of missing or ambiguous information. Now, that said, most information issues are easy to resolve. We'll get to that later. The second level is environment. So even when people have the right information, something in the environment could act as an obstacle. Here are a few examples. So people have different moods and energy levels during the day. If you're working in different time zones and you send a request at the start of your day, you might be upbeat, ready to get into some work, but it might reach other people who are at the end of their day and they might be tired, less alert, and the last thing they want to do is starting a new work. So they leave it till they get into work the next day, which means that that request doesn't get addressed for your whole workday. Another example is that there are office politics. Now that exists even in a distributed team and some people may be jostling for influence. So, and so that leads to conflict as well. 
The team culture might be different in different locations. For example, if there are head office staff, they might resent the freedom and flexibility that people who are working from home have. And the other way around as well, people from home might resent having to take orders from head office. So that's environment. The next level is skills. And some conflicts occur simply because people don't have the skills to work effectively in a distributed team. They have all the right information, the right environment set up for them, but they simply don't know how to operate effectively. Just simple things. They might not know how to manage their email inbox. So, so messages get missed or they get deleted accidentally. They don't know how to start online meetings. They don't know how to use the virtual work, workspaces. They don't know how to choose the right communication channels. So this can lead to miscommunication, uh, misunderstandings, confusion, and maybe even the person without the skills is subtly excluded in the future because it's too difficult to deal with them. The next level, even deeper, is values. So even when your team members have the right skills, a clash of values can make them reluctant to participate and collaborate. For example, people from different cultures might have different expectations about simple things like punctuality, more complex things like gender roles or standards of living or appropriate professional behavior. For example, one team member might think that he's superior because he has a bigger house than somebody else. But the other person's culture, maybe they don't value material goods, so she, she spends her money on experiences. She does, however, resent her colleague, assuming that she must be inferior because she lives in a smaller house. You can see how, in this example, the difference in their values has created a source of conflict. And the last level, even deeper than this, is identity. Conflicts can arise when people clash because of their deep personal beliefs about their identity. For example, somebody might feel that a piece of work that's, that they're asked to do is beneath them, so they pass it on to somebody they consider inferior or junior, whether or not that's true. Or two people refuse to back down from conflicting positions because they think that losing the argument means losing face or it would be humiliating. So those are the five levels or the five causes that you look for. The next stage is that you choose your role in resolving or addressing the conflict. So the reason you identify the cause first is to guide you in the role that you're going to take, and that depends on the conflict. So let's look at those five causes again and look at the role that you take in each of those situations. So information, if it's a simple information problem, your role is to be an advisor. So you point out to both parties what was missing or what was ambiguous if they haven't already realized it, and then guide them, advise them towards coming up with their own solution. This is pretty simple. Usually, even in a distributed team, you might be able to handle this by email or some other written communication. You don't necessarily even have to talk directly. Now, also, depending on the solution the parties find, it might be useful to share that with the rest of your team so that they don't make the same mistake with missing or ambiguous information. So information problems, your role is to be an advisor. The next level is environment. If the conflict arose because of a problem with the environment, your role is to be a manager. So again, engage with the people involved and ask for their suggestions. But because an environment problem, the solution might be outside their authority or responsibility. So now you have to take on responsibility for addressing the issue. Sometimes the issues are within your control, and in this case, you can act to adjust the environment. So for example, if conflicts arise because of people working in different time zones, you might be able to adjust work days or meeting times to suit everybody. Other environment issues will be beyond your control. If you need to shift resources into the cloud, change your workflows, use new software, adjust working conditions, you might need to enlist the help of other people in your organization, IT, 
HR or other parties, but it's still your responsibility to act and to get it done. Especially true when you're working with remote team members who are further away from those support services. They're relying on you to act on their behalf. The next level is skills. Where there's a skills problem, your role is to be a trainer or coach, or at least make sure that they get appropriate training or coaching. So you give these team members the professional development they need to build their skills and avoid potential future conflicts. And for training remote team members, you may need to find online courses or workshops in their local area. You can also provide mentoring from inside or outside your organization. The next level is values. And at the values level, your role is to be a mediator. Ideally, you want the conflicting parties to sort it out themselves, but you mediate the discussion to keep it civil, professional, and ultimately working to a positive resolution for both parties. With a distributed team, keep all your communication clear and unambiguous. And, and that usually means that you can't just do it by email or other written means. You might need to bring the parties together by teleconference, video conference call, or even in person. And also be aware that some of these conflicts fall outside your area of responsibility. And be really careful here for deeply held beliefs, such as religious or ideological beliefs, or even things to do with status and self-esteem, it's better to hand the case over to a professional counselor or your HR team. So we looked at identifying the cause and identifying your role. The next step is to take action. Identifying the cause and identifying your role shouldn't take too long. So you should be taking action pretty quickly to address the conflict. Now, don't be rash and jump in too soon, but don't let a small problem fester and let it escalate into a major conflict. The longer you leave it, the worse it becomes and the more difficult it becomes to resolve. If the conflict is playing out in public before you intervene, decide when it's necessary to take it offline. In other words, do it privately. And it's usually the sooner the better. So you can resolve it privately and then you share the outcome publicly. Choose the right communication channels for acting. Email might be enough if the conflict's a simple misunderstanding between people who usually get along really well, they've usually got a good relationship, they've usually got a high level of trust, but only do this if there's no doubt that everybody parties see the conflict the same way. If there are underlying issues you haven't noticed, then there's a risk that you can make the conflict worse. An online meeting, especially with video, is better for discussion, especially if you sense that there's going to be a bit of an emotional discussion. Also, because so much communication distributed teams happens in writing, you might have a communication trail leading up to the conflict. So you can get a bit of background information before bringing the parties together. Now, it's useful for understanding the background, but just a word of warning here. Be wary of holding people too closely to what they said and wrote. Some things that are written in the heat of the moment don't reflect the person's true intent. So be forgiving. If you push them into a corner, they can become defensive and dig their heels in. And that, of course, makes it more difficult to resolve the conflict. As you're acting, keep the parties informed during the process. For example, if you promise to raise an issue with HR or IT, copy the parties on the email so they know that you did it. And when you think that you found a solution, you know, together with the parties, check in with everybody. Don't just send a quick email summarizing the solution and assume the issue is closed. Check in with each person individually to ensure that, that they're at least satisfied with the outcome. You won't always get everybody cheering enthusiastically. They may not be happy with the outcome, but they should at least be satisfied that you went through a fair process to get them on board and to achieve a reasonable outcome.
and then decide who else needs to know about the conflict. If it was first raised in public, then after you resolve it privately, you should close the loop and share the outcome publicly. But sometimes, even if the conflict started off in private, you may need to use your judgment and decide whether it needs to be shared more publicly than that. So last step in the process is to learn from the conflict. You can use the conflict as a learning opportunity for yourself, the parties involved, and possibly the entire team. For example, if the conflict was based on missing information or a lack of infrastructure, you can improve your processes, share information better, provide better collaboration tools, change your work practices, use more video conferencing, and so on. So you can use a conflict to spur continuous improvement so that the conflict doesn't happen again. If it was a skills issue, consider what training you can provide to prevent future conflicts. Presumably, you provided the training for the parties involved, but was the professional development that you offered in that situation useful for other people as well? In any event, make sure that you're providing relevant professional development, training and upskilling on a regular basis. If the conflict was due to a clash in values or identity, it might raise more sensitive issues. You can still help the team learn from it, but involve HR as well so you manage it appropriately. Also balance a team learning opportunity with people's privacy. In some situations, it's worth sharing what happened with the rest of your team so other people can learn from it. But in other situations, it's, it's appropriate to treat it completely privately. You address it, you manage, you resolve the conflict privately, and nobody else needs to know. And if it was a conflict that started in private, nobody else knew about it, then consider whether you need to get the consent of the people involved to share it more publicly if you think the team can learn from it. And finally, conflict's an opportunity for your own personal development as well. After resolving the conflict, reflect on how you handled it. Consider what you did effectively, what you could have done better. Additional training in mediation or facilitation skills may help you if you face similar situations in the future. So use a conflict not just to improve the way your team works for each other, but to improve how you work for them. So in conclusion, Conflict's inevitable. Don't be afraid of it. Don't shy away from it. Be open to it. Be alert to it and address it as quickly as possible. It's a normal part of humans working together. And part of your role as a leader is to steer your team members through it when it inevitably arises. If you're leading a distributed team, you're more likely to face professional conflicts and personal conflicts, and they're typically easy to resolve. But you might face more challenges because you need new skills to address conflicts with people who don't work in the same location. There's no doubt that our workplaces are going to become increasingly distributed, so the conflict resolution skills you learn and apply today will prepare you well for being a leader tomorrow. Welcome to the future. I hope you enjoyed that and learned something useful and valuable that you can put into practice. If you did get some value from it, please review and rate it at the place where you subscribe to this podcast because that helps promote it to other people as well. Many of us are coming to terms now with teams working from home but still needing ongoing professional development. And I offer a number of online programs about leadership, innovation, disruption, teams, being customer-centric, and so on. You can find out more at gihansprograms.com. And if you want to engage with me in other ways, go to gihanperera.com, where you can find my blog, newsletter, podcasts, videos, and webinars, all free, all designed to help you leverage the potential of your organization, your team, and of course, yourself. Stay safe and healthy. Bye for now. For show notes, past episodes, and more, visit gihanperera.com. And remember, great minds don't think alike.